Good Monday morning. Welcome to the Scuttlebutt. I'm Rich Mellon, Trapping Inc. TV, and today we have a very special guest coming to us from Montana. Uh, we hope we're having we're having uh, Wi-Fi issues. <laughs> the man is Dan Helterline, and he is, of course, a trapper, which we're very interested in. But he's had a very interesting life, uh, another career uh, that's not even connected to trapping, and and that is uh, as a smoke jumper. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning. I want to know about smoke jumping. Okay, uh, smoke jumping, I guess, for those who don't, aren't familiar with it, they're a, uh, an aerial delivered initial attack firefighter. So they use aircraft and parachutes to remote uh, fires in the backcountry or fires that are difficult to access. There's no uh, road access or ways to get engines or equipment to them. So they parachute smoke jumpers in and then paracargo equipment in behind them to help uh, stop fires while they're small before they get really big and established. And I think there is a smoke jumper base in Canada. It's in Fort St. John's because we've sent folks up there and then they've come down to, to the Missoula smoke jumper base as well. This uh, started when, back in the 30s? Yeah, I think the first Earl Cooley and Rufus Robinson were the first guys to jump a fire in 1939 in Moose uh. Creek in central Idaho. <laughs> they were brave. Lewis Creek in, in central Idaho. So you're talking about some pretty rugged country. Yeah, it's typically, I mean, not always, but yeah, wilderness, just areas that are hard to reach, you know, by roads and stuff that they want to, you know, contain fires before they get large. Um, so, you know, some fires in the backcountry, they let burn, because, you know, fires actually are pretty good for the environment, but then some of them that, you know, they're going to threaten resources or threaten values at risk. They'll, they'll decide to put them out, different managers of the land. And then, uh, yeah, they, on smoke jumpers there's a smoke jumper base in almost every state in the west and alaska and i said there's a one in canada also you raise a, a really good point when you talk about that some fires are good for the environment uh, that ha is lost on most people today isn't it you know the, yeah the role of fire in the ecosystem but you know the woods and the you know, that has evolved around fire it's had fire you know, that's how it's evolved and it's part of the land, you know, the health of the landscape. You know, in a certain point, we just thought fires were detrimental, detrimental, so we removed that. And I think that's a lot of reasons why we have a lot of disease and stuff in the forest. They've kind of realized that and they're trying to go back to, you know, letting a certain amount of fire uh, remain on the landscape. But it's pretty political. You know, there's a lot of people who live in the woods. So, you know, fires affect a fair amount of people. So, well, yeah. You're, you're right. I mean, they've politicized it so much that, I mean, fires are bad. All Every fire is bad. And, and and when we have these fires now, it's all climate change, climate change, right? And a lot of it is, is that we're just not utilizing the force the way we used to. You know, we're, we've got, I know here in Canada, especially, we have a problem with uh, pine beetle. And, you know, it creates yeah. these, these dead stands of trees that are, I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you anything about pine beetle. <laughs> no, we have, we have a lot of that in Montana also. And it's just standing fuel, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, a, a certain uh, amount of fire in the landscape kind of helps maintain that, you know, reduce insect in infestation and, you know, just different diseases and stuff, you know, that, that are attacking the forest now because we've removed fire from a lot of the landscape. Yeah, true enough. True enough. I mean, they never used to, I mean, uh, pine beetles have made it into Alberta in my lifetime. You know, like, uh, I think it was back in, the late 70s or the early 80s that we actually had a big a big wind 
when when their hatch was going off, a big wind happened and blew them over top of the mountains. The mountains were always the separating point; they could never get across, right? And mm -hmm. uh, a big wind blew them over, and and that's you know that that how it all started here. But we do we fight fire so so drastically now as compared to what we used to. You know, you used to let it burn, and I know as uh, I'm a, a director on the Alberta uh, Wild Wild Sheep Federation of Alberta board. And one of the things we're trying to do is get the, the government to burn a little bit more. We're trying to get rid of uh, aspen encroachment and that kind of stuff in the mountains. You know, because you take a look at, we found uh, aerial plats that, um, they're glass plats, really cool, but they're aerial photos of, of our mountains in the in the 60s. And when you take a look at the picture of them compared to today, they, of course they can replicate these uh, these uh, pictures exactly. And and today, and you see how much the, the aspen has, has crept up on the mountain and how much it it's got closer to the, uh, the, the sheep escape uh, areas and, and the fact that, you know, it, it's covering over a lot of places where the sheep used to, used to graze. So fire is very important, you know, but we've stopped all of that from happening, right? Oh, yeah. And we have the same thing down here. There's like a lot of dug fir and different tree species that are encroaching on the traditional, you know, species over there and making, you know, making the canopy thicker. And then, you know, it's more susceptible to, you know, catastrophic fire, disease, you know, et cetera. When you uh jump in uh, of course you got to land pretty close i imagine that there's you don't want to land very far away from the fire but there, and you must try for a large open area or something to land in but i mean it, it must be must be pretty tough sometimes those must be there must be some hairy jumps huh yeah sometimes you get a fire where it's yeah it's pretty hard to jump close to it but um you're, you're exactly right you find you know try to find a meadow or natural opening that you can uh, you're confident you can safely steer and land your parachute in you know without um land, missing the spot or landing in the trees and you know the wind and a lot of different uh environmental things have an effect on that you know if it gets too windy you obviously can't jump because it's uh, too hard to you know to manipulate your parachute well you you must have a lot of jumps in the deer belt um i think i retired in 2005 or 2015 with probably oh i was close to 400. wow that's total jumps, you know, about 150 fire jumps. I, your heart go pitter patter every time you, you go to do it. <laughs> you, well, you, you gotta pay attention. Yeah, you gotta focus. <laughs> I guess so. I'll tell you right now, right here, right now, that if I'm in a perfectly serviceable plane, there's no way you're getting me to jump out that door. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard that more than once. I'm sure you have. <laughs> what was your worst jump? Oh, I broke my hip on a jump. Oh, in about 2010 or 11, roughly, I dislocated my hip. So I had to get a uh, short hauled out, which is where they come in with a paramedic hooked to a basket under a helicopter and then kind of pluck you off the mountainside and get you down to the hospital. Oh, okay. Okay. And what went wrong there? Just bad landing? Um, I kind of flew past the jump spot. We were in a high surf basin. And so then when I was getting close to the ground, the, the fall line changed and I was kind of flying into the slope. So I was the middle guy in a three person stick. So you don't want to turn around because you have a guy following you in behind you. So I just kind of took my knocks and uh, I didn't land super hard, but I hit my knee on a stump and it was enough to pop my hip out of socket. Ow. <laughs> that sounds yeah, like it was hurts. moderately uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Not as uncomfortable as when you got on the ground and they pulled it back into place. <laughs> well, they didn't do that till I got to the hospital, but yeah. 
Yeah. It still involves pulling. I, I know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They say, oh, this isn't going to hurt too much. <laughs> no. <laughs> What's your best story about, about smoke? Oh, joke? I mean, I got tons of stories. Uh, one of them that comes to mind, though. So the Forest Service traditionally jumped around kind of a drag parachute. And at some point, they decided to tra transition into the square, the ram air parachute that the BOM currently uses and is used. So I got to be one of the, so I was the second class from Missoula that went up to um, Alaska and trained, you know, on this new parachute system. And then after we got done with training, we got to stay up there for the fire season. And then, uh, so we jumped a fire uh, up by Healy Lake. Oh, it's kind of in central Alaska somewhere. But um, when we were circling the fire, I could see a little cabin down below it <laughs> that perked my interest. So once we got um, on the ground, you know, once we got the fire kind of lined and contained, I wanted to hike down and check out that cabin. So I hiked down to where it was at. And when I come into the meadow, there was literally hundreds, or not hundreds, but there was wolf skulls wired in bundles all over in the trees and all over the side of the cabin. It was incredible. I took pictures of it and I have them somewhere. But I, I would guess over a hundred wolf skulls. And then so when I got off of the fire, oh, the other thing that really uh, I really found interesting on that fire, I dug through the cabin, you know, the roof was caved in, it was in shambles. And I found a 1984 small Playboy cal uh, calendar <laughs> and one of the centerfolds was Shannon Tweed. And, uh, and she was, so that was the year I graduated from high school. So that was a big deal for me. So I took it back to camp and most of the jumpers were younger. Maybe you know who Shannon Tweed was. And so I was calling them junior woodchucks, you know, but anyway, so I got out back to the smoke jumper base in uh, Fairbanks. I met Marty Mariotto, um, you know, that his, uh, he was on the history channel for mountain Inn. he was a smoke jumper. <laughs> so I told him about the cabin. He said, Oh yeah, that's Paul Kirkstetter's cabin. You know, he's one of the best wolfers in Alaska. So he said, go down to the Trapper Association office in town and you can get like a living oral history of him. So I did, you know, and it was super interesting. And he was one of those guys that went to Alaska when he was a teenager. You know, I think he was from New Mexico or something and then just, you know, spent the rest of his life up there married a native gal. I think they had, they checked their trap lines on dog sled, but, you know, super interesting. It is. So that's probably one of my first things that can segue to uh, trapping, I guess, wolf trapping <laughs> in particular. <laughs> well that's so, how you came to my attention so on that on that same fire go ahead on that same fire a little side note after we we were taking a break and we went down there was like four or five of us taking a break on the healy river and some of the guys were kind of napping all of a sudden i looked upstream and i noticed something had entered the river and was swimming and when i figured out what it was it was a lynx so the houndsman and me immediately jumped to my feet and I tried cutting that thing off when it come out of the bank. I figured well, maybe I could pressure it to get in a tree and I can get some pictures of it. But yeah, I'm not fast enough to tree a link. So I soon found out. So, but I got to see one pretty close. So that was pretty awesome. And there, there was a trap line, you know, we could see traps hanging in trees and stuff from that old trap line there. It was pretty, it was pretty interesting, you know, spot. So he, he just abandoned her one year and never made her back. Was that it? I think so. Probably old, yeah. And I don't know if somebody else had been in there trapping, but you know, I think a lot of those Alaska guys, they just spring their traps and leave them hanging. Yeah. You know, they don't pull them out and service them every year like they do down, you know, in other trap lines that are road accessible or whatever. Yeah. Well, if they're not worried about somebody trap. stealing them, why, why not leave them hang there? I would. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, yeah. what better, what better uh, seasoning can you have than it hanging there, right? Oh, yeah. 
So yeah, we'd be when there was traps in different spots. So it's definitely you could tell you're on somebody's trap line. Oh. That, was, that was pretty interesting. That's very cool. That's very cool. I know with uh, when you talk about links and about about uh, uh, treeing a links and that, I, I have friends who uh, they they run cougar here in Alberta and they run cougar, bobcat, bear, and lynx in, in BC. And they say that when you go after lynx, you just send one dog and it don't bark. Because if it barks, mm -hmm. that cat doesn't quit running. They, yeah. they said that they're not like a cougar or, or like a bobcat. They won't tree if they're being barked at. Huh. I don't. I, yeah, I, I know, know. They're, they're hard to tree. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have any, any uh, knowledge of it firsthand other than that one failed attempt. Maybe I shouldn't have barked at that lynx and I was trying to get close to it. That's why he didn't tree. Well, I think I was letting out of some barks. <laughs> well, that's just, that's natural, right? To try and scare him to go get him go up to up yeah. the tree. Like, and I mean, I've, I've had, I've had a little beagle dog that put bears and, and, and cougar in that up a tree, but it wasn't, a, and that was years before I, you know, I was talking with my buddy and my, my buddy ended up, uh, he, he, we have a, a mutual friend who has a trap line and there is, uh, they got some, a, a special, um, uh, acceptance or whatever from from fish and wildlife where they could run links on his trap line here in alberta but he had to be the one that did the shooting and the, like the owner of the trap line right and uh i forget under what definition that this worked out but anyway they did that and he, he didn't have a, a too big of a trap line but like i think it was like you know 12 miles by six miles or something like that and they cut eight lynx tracks and every one of them left his trap line without ever treeing. Hmm. Yeah. They just, they never, they never treed. And I said, so what did you accomplish Luke? And he says, well, he said, I chased all the cats off my trap. Line. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know the other guys on that, that were resting down that riverbank with me. They found it pretty entertaining watching me try to chase that thing. They got some pretty good laughs out of it. They're, they're surprisingly fast. You know, they oh, look, yeah. They look sleepy when they're when they're wandering wandering around in the woods and that and, and or they sit there and look at you like I mean there's times when you'll drive up beside them on a snowmobile and they'll sit there and they'll look at you and it's like you know yeah well whatever kind of thing and yeah. <laughs> they're not they're not uh, very high stressed at all. Uh -huh. Where I got connected on with you was on uh, I saw an article and I'm, I'm going to share my screen here. I can share my, figure out how to share my screen. I'm going to show this uh, article of yours right here, Evolution of a Wolf Trapper. And uh, what struck me the, the most about it was, was uh, you were telling the truth on the weight of the wolf. You know, everybody lifts a wolf and it's 200 to 300 pounds. And, and uh, you weren't, uh, you weren't being BS and you said, you know, it's like a 95 pound wolf, which, you know, is, is like the alpha. Some of them get bigger. You know, but there, there's very, very few of them that'll go 120 pounds or bigger. You know what I mean? But I just, it just struck me that, that you were telling the truth. That and, uh, and I absolutely loved uh, the, the other picture here. Just hang on. Um, hey, folks, Rich from Trapping Inc. TV here. And it's no secret that I'm a big fan of coffee. Our friends at Old Smokes smoke roast their coffee beans over wood fires. You have no idea how good coffee can taste until it's smoked coffee. Did you know that studies have shown that just the smell of fresh coffee can boost brain activity? Yeah, it's that good. Sandy and I have teamed up with Old Smokes Coffee to make our own Trapping Ink coffee blend. Let me introduce you to Wolverine, an ultra dark roast coffee bean smoked over maple wood fires. 
This is the pure, uncut Trapper's Fuel that keeps us laughing and trapping all day long. If you'd like to try our special blend, you can find it at www.trappinginc.com forward slash shop. If dark roast isn't your thing, Old Smokes has five different coffee roasts from light to extra dark, each roasted over a different wood for a unique flavor. Right now, you can order from their online store and use our promo code RICH, that's R-I-C-H, and get 10% off your entire order. Just go to www.oldsmokescoffee.com. That's O-L-E, smokescoffee.com, and use the promo code RICH. That is promo code RICH for 10% off your entire order. And now let's get back to today's show. I loved uh, the picture of your uncle's barn. No, I don't. All the fur that you have on that there. That was a good year, huh? Yeah, that's just right up the road from where I live. Um, so I saw on Helterline Road. He was like the first of the Helterlines to get in the valley here and start homesteaded. And then his his brother followed him out, which had been my great-grandpa. And then, yeah, they kind of farmed this corner of the valley so and split up with their kids. There was at one time quite a few Helterline ranches, you know, down here, but I'm kind of like the last one. Just like everything, everybody's kind of died and moved on and I just have my own little... <laughs> A dough, you know, my own little house here on Helterline Road. So. <laughs> so wolves are your thing or or canines or predators? Like, uh, obviously, you know, it's a pretty recent thing because when, when did uh, trapping for wolves be allowed again? I thought it was around 2011. Um, it was kind of right about the time when I was getting ready to retire. So I kind of seen the writing on the wall. You know, I seen at that time, you know, the wolves were protected and they'd created a tremendous amount of damage you know to the elk and deer because they were allowed to you know reproduce unchecked and when they dumped them out you know they dumped them out on a pretty much an unlimited food source so of course they expanded exponentially with you know little or no competition so i don't know i just seen it as an opportunity you know the coyotes too we have high numbers of coyotes in certain spots um i just figured that would be my retirement hobby or my second job or whatever so <laughs> once i retired i kind of dove headlong into that since I had, you know, unlimited time to pursue it, I, uh, yeah, made it a pretty full-time endeavor. Well, your wolves are from us in Alberta here. <laughs> we oh, yeah, so I want to thank you guys, our neighbors <laughs> to the north, for that gift that keeps taking. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> hey, you guys were paying us for it, and we were like, you want to live, you're sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I can tell you, man, those Canadians must have been laughing their ass off with this face. And we paid them for wolves. Yeah, well, I mean... It, it, they're a problem for us, like a huge problem for us. I mean, when you oh, take yeah. a look at, um, they say in Alberta, we should have about 1,600 wolves to have a balanced population. They figure right now we've got somewhere around 7,500 or 8,000. But even if you take half that number, um, if you take 4,000 wolves, it takes 200,000 ungulates, moose, deer, and elk. It takes 200,000 of them to supply the 30,000 uh, ungulates it takes just to feed those 4,000 wolves so that's not counting roadkill or or hunters or anything else just to feed 4,000 wolves you have to have a herd of 200,000 animals you know and we've got double that we've, oh, got, yeah. we've got double that here in Alberta like I mean we have uh, studies all the time they say that you know a stable population is uh, you know like six six wolves per 100 square kilometers uh, you know uh, pardon me, uh, damage starts at six, at six wolves for hundred square kilometers damage to the, to the, uh, uh, ungulate populations and that. And, and we're, we've got lots and lots of our areas that are at 11, 12 wolves per hundred square kilometers. 
you know, it, it, so we're, mm-hmm. we're way beyond where we should be. One thing um, I followed all of that. And as the study started coming out, uh, the, both the wolves going into Yellowstone and, and all, and was, I believe this might've been particular to the Yellowstone Valley, but it was what they did to the coyotes. Like there had been a very high population of coyotes there and the wolves just about wiped them out. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like one of those odd things where there's there so much food that there really wasn't competition, but they, they just the territorial part of, of being a wolf, they, they just about wiped out the coyotes. You know, they, they killed over 200 of them in, in the first six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've definitely displaced the coyotes here. I wouldn't say they've wiped them out, but uh, I mean, you still find coyotes where the wolves, you know, are occupying their territory, but yeah, they're, they're pretty quiet. If you hear coyotes yipping or howling, you know the wolves aren't around. Um, yeah. But yeah, there, there's, there's overlap, but yeah, they haven't wiped them out, but I'm pretty sure they, they've displaced them a moderate amount. But the, what's really happened that I've seen is they've displaced the deer and elk, you know, so now most of the deer and elk that have survived are right down in the valleys and right in all the ag ground because it's the only refuge for them. They've kind of, the wolves have ate and pushed them out of the mountains. So now they're down in all the farmers' crops, you know, tearing down fences and eating, you know, all the crops. And that's, you know, their last little, and they're on private property almost exclusively, so they're not totally accessible to hunters so i mean that's kind of one of the big changes i've seen you know with the big game it's fascinating that's fascinating so talk to me about your wolf your wolves and and how you how you trap them out um you know what what do you what's your favorite sets what do you look for i'd like to learn about about montana wolves well when i first started you know i didn't there wasn't wasn't hardly any good information out there because it was a pretty fledgling sport, you know, or endeavor. Um, there was information from Alaska and that, but the conditions up there are so vastly different. I found a lot of that information wasn't very relevant. You know, they make a lot of snow sets. The snow is super dry up there. You know, they're allowed to snare. Um, so I kind of had to just fall back. The first year I tried, I didn't catch any, but then I went and got some instruction from Craig O'Gorman, which he's, you know, undoubtedly one of the best predator trappers in the lower 48. And so that really upped my coyote game. And then I just started applying some of those basic coyote principles to wolf trapping. I mean, my basic two sets are a dirt hole and a flat set. You know, you just make them on a little grander scale for wolves. And um, that's what I catch almost all my stuff exclusively. And I've caught a couple in snow sets, but our conditions are so, we have such a uh, freeze thaw cycle here that makes snow sets unviable. You'll make a nice set when the snow is cold the next week the snow's warm or we get a lot of rain in the winter. So I right. pretty much went to catching everything in the dirt. You know, I started using wax dirt and now I've kind of started uh, transition to wax sand. I just found that's a little more consistent and it's easier to make. You can make it whenever. I was making my wax dirt through solar heating so you have the right weather window. And uh, if you make your wax sand in a cement mixer, um, if you're careful, you can make it whenever you want. So it's a little more versatile. Right. You mentioned that... Uh understanding coyotes helped you understand wolves uh, um yeah i mean i just use the same sets you know just on a bigger scale you got a pattern pattern your wolves so you have to um have your sets where those wolves are going to naturally find them it's hard to bring you know pull them off a road pull them into a set you gotta have your stuff where they're naturally going to find it you know along their travels and you know same way with coyotes so you kind of just, you know, you know how to read the landscape or, or scouting is huge. Just trying to, you know, figure out the wolves travel ways uh, and just put your sets 
you know, so they intercept that. You know, I had a pretty big advantage when I started wolf trapping because I'd been a lion hunter for 25 years. So once the wolves showed up, um, you know, I knew right where they were crossing habitually, you know, four or five years before we even had a season. So I had a pretty good, you know, layout of where I needed to have my trap line before I even, you know, started just from being in the woods every day, lion hunting and just seeing where wolves crossed and, you know, kind of figuring out their patterns. Number one question I get is, you know, where should I set traps, you know, for, for this animal or that animal? And I, and I always, always answer with how well do you know your trap line, you know, and I'm sure a lot of the people that ask the questions think it's a cop out with what I'm saying, but nothing compares to knowing exactly. Cause I'm, I'm sure that you've got sets for wolves or where, where they cross and that, that, that aren't obvious. And that you, if you didn't have that time there, you wouldn't know where the, that the wolves were using it. Right. No, that's correct. Um, but I know when I do seminars and give instruction or whatever, I tell people it only takes two things to catch a wolf. Uh, first, you got to have them step on your trap. And second, the trap's got to fire. Um, yeah. Get those two things to happen and you got them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little more complicated to that. But, you know, that's one of the biggest obstacles is setting in the ground is having your traps work. So we have such a freeze thaw cycle. So I try to find my set locations where they're sheltered from the weather somewhat. So when we get big dumps of snow, they don't receive the full brunt of that. And then the ground usually doesn't have as much moisture in it, won't freeze as solid. But they're using that in conjunction with good wax sand, you know, and then those locations got to intersect wolf sign, you know, setting on signs huge. Um, if you see wolves cross a spot once, that's good. But if you see them cross there again, you know, that's probably a habitual crossing. So that's a money spot. Yeah, exactly. So in your area, then you, you must be like under, under cover of trees a lot then, or, or like the sunny side of a big tree kind of thing where, 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 you know, it gets less snow and, and, uh, doesn't, doesn't freeze quite so hard. Yeah, exactly. Stuff that's, yep. Uh, under the canopy somewhat, you know, large tree wells that just don't get all the snow, you know, and then the ground has less moisture in it. Um, once, when we do get a lot of snow, um, deer will start using those tree wells more. So just once in a while, you'll catch a deer. A lot of times they can pull out of your traps, they hit the end of the chain and uh, they can pop out. Uh, not all the time, but I'd say about 75% of the time they get out. And you always know when you got a deer because your trap will be the end of the chain, nothing in it. And then I use those heavy screen pan covers. The yeah. pan cover will just be laying there untouched. Whenever you catch a canine and if it pulls out, you will have that that trap pan cover will have a bunch of bite marks in it. I think as that trap hits their foot, that's the first thing they do is start biting at their foot and they'll just destroy that pan cover. Um, so if I see a pan cover laying in the snow, it's got teeth marks in it, you know, as a wolf pull out. Does that happen often? No, no, pretty rare. You know, when you get, um, you have to get your traps placed good and you got the right pan tension. Almost all the time you'll make a good, you know, you strive for a good front foot catch. Um, you can catch them by the hind foot. It's not as desirable because they can fight harder and their back foot's narrower. Um, I stake all my stuff short. I don't use grapples very much. So it kind of removes some of the power. I got stuff with a shock spring on it. Let's, so yeah, you can catch them by a couple of Let's toes step back a bit them. there where you said that you want to target the front foot and, and uh, you know, like explain this, explain the, the thought process that goes on and on how you, you make that happen. Well, you just, you know, after you catch enough wolves and observe their tracks, you get kind of an innate sense of where to place your traps. Everybody asks me, how far away from your dirt hole? How far back? You know, I tell them there's no uh, set formula. 
you put your trap where the wolf's going to place his foot. When I tell when I tell people uh, if you see wolf tracks in the wild and they're marking stuff, study them. And then never you know they're not always going to approach a pee post the same, but they will that will tell you where you need your trap placement. Um, you know you can make a wolf step about anywhere. It just kind of depends on you know your set and how you know if I use blocking, I use stuff that's super subtle. I don't block my stuff very heavy. But I have a pretty good sense of where a wolf's going to step. So, I mean, that's, and that's where I'll bed my trap. That's okay. Do you have a, a, a preferred trap? Um, so I've tried a lot of different ones. Um, I use almost exclusively TS-85s that I personally modify. When um, wolf trapping first come on scene, there wasn't a lot of traps to choose from. There was the MB-750s. So everybody kind of went to those. Um, I tried some. I didn't really care for them. They're kind of prone to freeze down and they have some trigger issues. So then I seen an M, uh, um, a TS-85 in a catalog and it looked like it had promise because it had a nice big jaw spread. So I only ordered one and I started messing with it. And then I got a hold of Tim Saworski, the manufacturer of that trap. And he helped me with some of the modifications and it was just kind of an evolution. And then, you know, what took me four or five, six years, I was tweaking it every year till I come up with the trap that I prefer now. Um, there's a lot of good wolf traps out there on the market, but a lot of them are incredibly expensive, you know, over a hundred dollars. So that kind of makes, in my opinion, it makes them cost prohibitive. Um, I can get into my TS 85s for about a third of that. So that's kind of what I've chose. They're a, a long spring, aren't they? No, they're coil springs. They were, okay. they're originally designed for beaver. Um, right. so they were, they were corner swiveled. So I had TME center swivels, everything. And then I have him, um, cut offsets in the jaws when you make the jaws there are four coils them and then I, when i get them i laminate the jaws and then i have to, i put when you four coil them it creates a bunch of torque so the free jaw hikes up a bit so i put a shim on the spring levers to kind of get that jaw back level and then i'll put a trigger tab on the inside of the jaw that the pan latches onto and that gets the pan lower than the jaw level which i think is uh, beneficial Hey folks, Rich here with some exciting news from TrappingInc.com. We were listening when you said you wanted more clothing, and we heard you loud and clear. We've expanded our clothing line. More colors, men's, ladies, and children's sizes, more variety. Living off-grid gives more time for the creative juices to flow. New humorous observations are added weekly, as well as our classic Trapping Inc. logo. We have joined forces with Tee Public. You can find our Tee Public storefront from the store page on TrappingInc.com. Just go to www.trappinginc.com forward slash shop and just scroll down to find the link for our Trapping Inc. storefront. Or you can go to tpublic.com and enter Trapping Inc. TV in the search bar at the top. Check it out. Big sales every month and you can save up to 35%. Don't miss out. Get your favorite gear today. And now let's get back to today's show. <laughs> You sound like my buddy when he's talking about his latest his latest uh, uh, hot rod that, that, that he's working on. <laughs> he got all these these tweaks and and uh, uh, modifications. That's interesting. I wish you had one of those here to, to, to show us. We'll we'll have to we'll have to do this in person. I, I'd like to I look at your your traps. So one thing though, I noticed you said that you yours are offset and and laminated. Is that required by law or is that a personal preference? Uh, personal preference, not required yet. We have some trap requirements. You know, they're trying to go by some of that best management practices. They have to be center swiveled, two swivels um, on the chain. But I just find that, you know, it's just like an evolution of everything. Our equipment now is better than it used to be. 
Um, you try to, you know, be as humane and give the offer the animals most comfort as possible. So I think, you know, offset jaws are, are huge. I won't set a trap for on land that doesn't have offset jaws. And the lamination, it just gives you a little more of a uh, gripping surface on the, on the jaw, it stiffens it up um, just to allow it. So you get a better catch. Um, yeah. Cause you don't, you don't want, you don't want any broken bones or anything. That's what a lot of misperception is. These traps are just wicked medieval torture devices that break bones. And I go to schools quite a bit and dem do demos on trapping. And that's one of the first things I do is show a coyote trap and I'll stick my hand right in it. Yeah. And, uh, it gets a pretty good reaction from the kids. And I, I think, I think that's an easy enough thing to explain. And, and I think that you can get most trappers to agree that, that it is, you know, offsets and laminations are, are beneficial to the animal. But so many people believe, and I, I, I have those that I, I talk with this all about, all the time about the fact that they're offset, that the gap is in there, that it's easier for an animal to pull out. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, absolutely not. Um, that's still, that trap is still close, tight on their foot. You get a good catch above the pads and they, they can't, I mean, I can't say they can't, it's a lot harder for them to pull out. Um, what a government trapper told me is a lot of times if you have stuff on a grapple, they can wind it tight against a tree or something, and then they can use all the rest of their body to pull out and they can power out. So that's kind of why I stake stuff short and uh, avoid grapples. I'll use some grapples, but not, not much. And, you know, and another thing is uh, you don't want, you know, I catch a few mountain lions every year. You don't want a mountain lion in a trap with a grapple that's going to be in the brush somewhere. I want that thing right in the open where I can <laughs> deal with him. Uh, you know, and the same thing, there's, there's worry about uh, catching grizzly bears. You know, if you catch a grizzly bear in a trap, you know, because we have a fair amount of them in Northwest Montana, you don't want that grizzly bear going into the brush, you know, and tangling up and then waiting for you. No. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm not a huge grapple fan. They definitely have their place. You know, a lot of the government trappers use them pretty exclusively because once they catch a wolf, you know, they're uh, research trappers, I should say, not necessarily government trappers. They want that wolf to go hide in the brush. So it's, you know, in good shape, it's out of the sun. So that's, you know, that's a grapple is a good, a good tool for that. And then they got, you know, they have access to stuff like they've got little motion detectors they can put in their, in their trap or whatever on the grapple that it helps them just find that wolf or whatever. But well, um, you only use snow sets, I'll use grapples because there's no way to really anchor, you know, without a big disturbance. But well, uh with those offset jaws too, in actual fact, your springs come up higher. And so you've actually got more pressure on, the, on those jaws. You know, it's harder for them to be opened when that, that animal's uh, foot is in there that, than, than if they weren't offset, right? Um, that kind of depends on how the trap's designed. Um, where the spring levers come up to is kind of independent of the offset because there are two different spots on the jaws. So it just allows those jaws not to close tight. So you're not going to break bones, you know, and, um, and get a twist off or whatever. So um, I, I think you're just going to, you're going to get better catches with offset jaws. It's just a better all around modification to your equipment. Yeah. We, we have to have offset by law or, or they can be rubber padded, but uh, we're too cold for rubber. I think, I mean, and there's, yeah. when, when it's really cold, it's, it's as bad as steel. I mean, my yeah. thoughts anyway. I've um, heard the same thing what do you how do you stake down uh earth anchors earth anchors you yeah earth favorite? anchors um i think it's those fox hollows ones that are thin i'll use for wolves i've tried a bunch of different ones i'll go with about 18 inches of chain and then i put a shock spring on them and then that then 18 inches more chain up to the trap um i've had them come out a 
rarely. Typically, it's when they've been in the ground for a long time and we've got a bunch of rain and I think it loosens up the ground. But uh, that's, that's a rarity. Most of the time, you drive those things in at the beginning of the season, then you get a little bit of a frost or a little bit of freeze layer. They will not come out. No. So typically, what I do is at the end of wolf season, I'll roll around and I just spring all my traps, kind of cover them up a little bit. They're all GPS. And then once the ground does thaw out, typically around uh, April, Easter time, I just make my rounds and then use my trap puller and those uh, anchors come right out with no damage to any of the S, you know, S links or anything. I don't lose any of them. You talked about not making a lot of disturbance. Uh, so does that mean, do you walk on, on the, the wolf trail in there to find a spot or uh, how, do, how do you go about that? Not making a lot of disturbance when you're making a set? Um, typically you just try to minimize it. There's a lot of people that kind of overthink the scent thing. There's absolutely no way to eliminate all your scent at a set. So I minimize it. Um, I use knee pads mostly for my own physical relief. <laughs> Not so much. Keeps your knees from getting wet. Once in a while, I'll use a ground cloth. So I'll get in, I'll make my set, try not to move around too much. And then I think that my key thing I found is I do not go near that set ever again until I think there's something wrong with it or it makes a catch. Uh, probably my number one question is how often do you rebate and relure? I tell people never. I do it once, do it really good right in the beginning of the season. And then unless we get a ton of rain, sometimes I'll add some more urine to flat set, but I'll never rebate. Those wolves have incredible noses. I've caught a ton of them at the end of the season in February and sets I've made in December with zero maintenance. And I think once that set's been in the ground for quite a while and that, that scent from your lure or whatever uh, becomes more faint, I think it becomes more attractive. Uh, when you first make them, that lure is overpowering. So I think they can figure it out. They're not as curious about it. Um, this is just kind of my own theories from personal observations. But I've caught a lot of stuff at the end of season when I know that lure has got to be pretty faint, but they yeah. still can find stuff. I've had them dig at dig hole, uh, dirt holes from the year prior. You know, they yep. can, they have incredible noses. It's, it's more subtle, I think is, is, uh, and that just makes them, them that much more curious, but I have the same thing happen with, with links. And I, uh, you know, I have, uh, I used to leave my lure sticks in my pens every year. Right. And I, mm -hmm. so I, I'd last put fresh, fresh lure on it in, in January. And I come back through in, and uh, in November when we, we, we doing our, um, uh, Martin and that, and the links, there'd be snow. So you'd see the links had gone into the pen and, and have pulled the stick out, out and, and chewed on it or rubbed on it or whatever that. So from January to November, there'd been nothing put on that. It's not in a hole or anything. It's just on a stick. You can't even see anything that's there anymore, and and yet it still has an attraction for them, right? I mean, you can't, oh, yeah. you, you can't fool that that nose, right? No, I've seen that a lot in wolves. So I, you know, I, I tell people if you're reluring and stuff a lot, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You know, you're wasting expensive lure, and I think you're being anti-productive. Um, but that's just kind of my personal opinion. Well, you catch lots of wolves, so I mean, it, it's a good opinion to listen to. What lure do you use? Um, I don't have any one particular lure. I like a variety of stuff. It's just like everybody, you know, a lot of people like different foods, you know, so I try to have a pretty big variety. I use a lot of Andy Weiser stuff. It's probably my bread and butter. You know, I still use a lot of old Gorman's. There's a little bit of Craven stuff that I use. And then, um, I'm always experimenting with different things. Um, you know, different guys are coming up with different lures. I'll try them. But, uh, you know, I think if a wolf hasn't had a negative encounter with a certain smell, you can catch him with anything. 
they're pretty curious. Uh, you can catch them with mink lure, you know, anything that's got a smell that's, you know, animal-like, they'll, they'll investigate unless they've had a negative encounter with that smell. When you get a wolf at a set, do you reset right there again? Absolutely. Um, and that's the other thing why I like steak and short creates a big catch circle. That's a huge attractant, huge. And I've noticed just from seeing sign in the snow, you catch one wolf, the rest will stay around there for quite a while. I mean, depending on, on the hierarchy of the wolf you've caught in the pack. Um, so something I kind of figured out from coyote trapping, I would, I will remake that set in the middle of that catch circle. And then I will set the edge of the catch circle and I've caught multiple doubles. I've got a picture of two wolves, six feet apart come back, I caught the female in the center set and then the male on the edge of the catch circle. Um, I've, caught, I've, I've caught a wolf in a set and I set the edge of the catch circle, caught a female. It took a month, but a month later, I caught the male on the edge of the catch circle. Um, I've caught five, six wolves in one remake. You know, they keep coming back. You know, some wolves are afraid of the catch circle, but not all of them. Um, so I mean, it's just it's the same exact thing applies to coyotes. You know, so I remake the catch circle and how I figured this out, I was coyote trapping, it was extremely muddy, a lot of rain. My catch circles were unremakeable. They were a bombed out mud hole. So I started bumping my traps out to the edge of the catch circle and just hammering them. And then, you know, I got to thinking, well, let's try that with wolves. You know, you see that, you know, wolf tracks all over around, you know, catch circles. So that's, you know, that's, uh, I, I do that religiously now as I do a remake and then always set the edge of the catch circle. Yeah. I Two things. One, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it seems like when I get a link spin that goes hot, you, the, the more times I have to rebuild that link spin, the more links I catch. It seems like when it's when it's active, it's it means it's more active. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Talk to me though about you've got your your catch circle, okay? And you're you've been set here in the middle because that's right where the trail went by, or that that's where the trail was closest to the tree, or or whatever. Whereabouts then would you set on the edge of your catch circle? Well, you just got to kind of look at it and find a natural pinch point. You know, mm -hmm. if there's going to be a couple of trees, they're, they're going to go through. I mean, it just really varies. You just kind of got to study it and then find, find a spot that's a good spot to blend a trap. And then, you know, where those wolves are going to, you know, I, I look for some kind of a, you know, blocking, natural blocking, like they're going to go kind of against a tree or between a couple bushes or something, you know, when they're, when they're going around that catch circle. And then that, that's where I'll set. I mean, there's no textbook answer, I guess. But uh, just like anything, you kind of study it and you get an innate kind of sense of where to put your trap. Okay, so you're you're just outside of the catch circle. You're you're when you say yeah. the edge of the catch circle, you might be you might be a foot or two feet away, depending on where where something is there that's going to funnel them through the, you know, like a, a pair of, of of bushes or whatever that they'll they'll Correct. walk through there as they're circling around. Exactly. Yep. Okay, good, good. I love that. That's that's a that's a good deal. Do you gang set much? Like other than absolutely. Okay. Yeah, wolves are always in a pack. I mean, not always, but you know, you get singles and doubles. But yeah, gang setting's huge. I've caught tons of doubles. I've yet to catch a triple or anything more than that. But I know guys have you know they've caught three, four, five in one spot. You know, if they got the right conditions, those wolves. You know, once you make one catch, the rest stick around. They don't just scatter. So the more, if you got a spot that's good for one trap, it's good for three or four. So I always, and in each set, I'll put a different scent in them. You know, if I can do in dirt holes, I'll put a different bait and lure combo in each one. So everything's a little different. So, you know, they come into one, maybe they don't like it. They'll walk over a little ways and then they found something that is, does perk their interest. But yeah, you can, yeah, you can make multiple catches a lot of times when those wolves come through, if you have, you know, your gang set. 
Okay, I here here's a scenario. I've got uh, a, a wolves have gone through a, a, a small pack, five six something like that, and they've got a peephole that they they a spot where they peed, and of course they all multiple pee on it, right? And so you'd put a, a a pee set there or or a foothold set there. How far away would you put the others? You know, it just depends. Every scenario is a little different. And, you know, that P-post, that might be a spot where you would want to grapple because you could double set it, one on, you know, the approach and the departure, and you catch one wolf and they could get the trap out of there without destroying it, and you, you could make a double catch doing it that way. That's one uh, instance where I would, you know, use a grapple. But then those wolves, you just kind of got to look around and just find set locations like you would normally set. Then I mean, there's no uh, set um, equation on distance, and you just kind of look around and place stuff accordingly. Um, you know, wherever you see good locations. I caught a male and a female. It's pretty interesting. Um, I called this male in in January. I uh, didn't, my gun that I was using, it was an extra gun. I hadn't checked the zero on it. I called him in with my voice. He come riding on a string and I was, I didn't kill him. I shot at him three times, but I seen where I had hit him just from a little blood in the snow, but I was just sick with myself because, uh, I probably had wolf fever. That thing come in on a string, big old gray male. And then, yeah, I, I didn't kill him. So I was pretty hard on myself driving home. But uh, I caught him and a black female three weeks later in a, in a double, you know, in a, in a gang set area. I caught the female, I think the one day, and he stayed around there for a, a whole day just looking at the tracks. And he finally found one of my sets and it was 150 yards away, but I ended up catching him. You know, I didn't realize at the time it was the same wolf. Um, but when I got home and skinned him, yeah, he had a 22. I shot him with a 22-250, but he had a bullet, a pass-through bullet wound in his hip that didn't hit any bone or anything. So uh, I tell everybody, well, I guess I'm a better trapper than a marksman. I'm okay with that. <laughs> People ask me what gun I carry, and I very seldom carry a gun because I, you know, if I see a lynx, a coyote, or wolf, or whatever, I just figure that I'll, I'll, I'll have them show up in a trap, and you know, I won't have a hole or blood to deal with. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah. I always have my dispatch gun. That's that little fold-up uh, Chiapa Little Badger. That thing's great. You know, it's a 22 mag. Yeah. So I have that with me at all the times. But I don't carry like a rifle, you know, a scoped rifle or anything. Right, right. When, um... Hey, folks, Rich from Trapping Inc. TV here. And it's no secret that I'm a big fan of coffee. Our friends at Old Smokes smoke roast their coffee beans over wood fires. You have no idea how good coffee can taste until it's smoked coffee. Did you know that studies have shown that just the smell of fresh coffee can boost brain activity? Yeah, it's that good. Sandy and I have teamed up with Old Smokes Coffee to make our own Trapping Ink coffee blend. Let me introduce you to Wolverine, an ultra dark roast coffee bean smoked over maple wood fires. This is the pure, uncut trapper's fuel that keeps us laughing and trapping all day long. If you'd like to try our special blend, you can find it at www.trappinginc.com forward slash shop. If dark roast isn't your thing, Old Smokes has five different coffee roasts from light to extra dark, each roasted over a different wood for a unique flavor. Right now, you can order from their online store and use our promo code RICH, that's R-I-C-H, and get 10% off your entire order. Just go to www.oldsmokescoffee.com. That's O-L-E smokescoffee.com and use the promo code rich that is promo code rich for 10 percent off your entire order and now let's get back to today's show when you set now you, this natural spot where they've been coming in and they, they made a trip and they peed would you make would you do all p p 
pee, pee sets or would you do some dirt holes around there? Um, you can do one or two dirt holes, you know, because you catch one wolf and he's, he's hanging out there. The rest are going to be in the area for a while and they're going to stumble upon stuff. And, you know, I found dirt holes are pretty good early season because wolves move into breeding. Uh, they're less effective. I think the wolves just kind of ignore them because they got other stuff on their mind. Yeah. Um, so then that's when, you know, uh, different kind of flat sets are more effective, you know, to get a territorial response out of stuff. So depending on what time of year it is, would probably dictate what kind of sets I use. But I mean, I'm, I use, I catch a lot of wolves in dirt holes. And I used to think maybe I was just catching the dumb pups. But I mean, I've caught some of my bigger wolves in a dirt hole. So, uh, and it's almost year in, year out, 50% each of flat sets and then 50% dirt holes is what I'm catching my stuff in. So, I mean, they're, they're a pretty valuable set. Well, everybody understands a dirt hole and how it works. Talk, talk about your flat set. Um, a flat set is just a P post, you know, a dirt hole, you have the, the dirt hole as a visual attractant. A flat set, there's typically not a visual attractant. It's all lure scent based, you know, to get a territorial response. You can use curiosity lure. You know, there's basically three types of lure. There's food lure, curiosity lure, and then, you know, your gland or sex type lures. So, I mean, you can get them in a, with a curiosity lure. Um, I use one of Andy Weiser's great ones. It's called Bad Company, and it's basically rotted down rattlesnake. Um, and so I would classify that as a curiosity lure, but that one's super so. effective. I mean, that works great. Um, I think O'Gorman's has one. It's called Big Medicine or Big Horn something, but it's a rattlesnake lure also. That's a curiosity lure. Um, you can use bones, you know, a bone or a skull, put a little bit of lure on it, you know, so that's a little bit of a visual attractor. But a flat set, your trap is typically blended, you know, um, so you don't really, you can't tell where the trap is if you're, you know, you're not, don't have a trained eye. To a dirt hole, you know, you have a big dirt pattern. You're trying to uh, mimic where an animal is dug at something, you know, and that's the kind of curiosity thing. Those wolves see where they think another animal is dug or hid something, and that's what kind of draws them into it. But, you know, that dirt hole set, if I had to use one set to catch a lot of different animals, that's what it would be. I mean, you can catch, I've caught otters in dirt hole sets. Um, you know, you catch everything from skunks on up to wolves, you know, so they're a pretty effective set. <laughs> they're all fascinating. You, are you a big dirt hole or a little dirt hole guy? Well, for wolves, you want stuff bigger, so bigger and flashy, you know. Um, yeah, so you can, I mean, I've used badger holes, you know, for, you know, just to kind of remake into a dirt hole. Those are pretty effective. You know, I put a whole skunk down in them and then just leave a little bit of the tail exposed for a little bit of visual. But uh, I don't know if you ever noticed, you guys, if you have badgers up there, whenever you see a fresh badger mound, almost 100% of the time, there's fresh coyote tracks right on top of it. So, I mean, that, uh, that fresh dirt is a huge attraction. Well, we don't have badger. We're too far north for badger. But, you know, like where my son lives and that's south of us. Yeah, they do. And I know exactly what you're talking about. But we have a similar situation where you know, when you have a, a road gets plowed in the wintertime and a dirt lump will get rolled up on the snowplow. And then the sun comes along and hits that dirt lump and warms it up and it rolls down to the bottom of the snowplow on the edge of the road. And it's a dark spot, right? It's about yeah. as visual as, as your dirt hole, but it's this dark lump. Every coyote, every dog, everything that walks down that road goes over and pees on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I yeah, have a kind of, kind of like it. I've got a like half a mile road from, from my house out to out to the highway and and I dirt lump uh, a, a coyote or two every winter, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's kind of like, I don't know, I'd call it a salient feature. It's just something that's kind of different, you know, in their landscape that they got to check out. And of course, when they figure out it's not a threat, then they got to pee on it. Exactly. How, how long is your season for wolves? Um, the, for trapping, it starts December 15th. 
goes to the end of February. They're trying to lengthen it because it's one of the things that's kind of prohibitive is, you know, they allow us to trap but it's in the worst times of the year. They've tried to lengthen it on the front end, but they're getting a lot of pushback from the fishing game uh, because of grizzly bear bycatch. You know, they think we're going to catch cubs and stuff and it's going to be a threat, you know, a danger to the public. You know, I guess I would strongly disagree. Um, you guys trap quite a bit up there and I don't think you have problems catching grizzly bears. You know, that's another thing. Uh, you stake short and stake tight. A big bear will pull out of your trap. I mean, sure, you could hold a cub, but uh, you're not going to hold an adult bear. I mean, I, I catch a fair amount of black bears coyote trapping and almost always they pull out. You know, once in a while you'll hold a small one and then they're always entertaining to try to release. Well, we overwhelmingly snare here just because of our conditions, because of winter and, and that kind of stuff. The, the traps become just, and we have a 48 hour check law and uh, out on the, on the big line. Well, I would have to, I, I would barely have time to gas up my machine to keep, keep going around and around my, my trap line to, to meet a 48 hour law. And, uh, but I know, I do know one person that actually snared a grizzly bear and he, it was a two-year-old cub and he would have never held it in the, in a wolf snare. I mean, usually they tear them apart. I mean, where he snares is in, you know, where he, his trap line is, is up in the, in the mountains. And uh, he did snare one, but uh, the bear panicked or whatever. And it went and managed to get itself over a branch. It, I guess it started to climb up a big pine tree there and it got itself over a branch and it just hung itself. Well, then once, once it slipped away from the, from the lost its grip on the tree and that, well, then, <laughs> it hung itself and he said that was pretty exciting the day he went to check because the mom was still there the other cub was still there and he says so i got out of there and he says he says my heart was beating so hard he says it, it took me hours before i could I, I could phone fish and wildlife and so fish and wildlife came in and, uh they went in once by foot and then they went in afterwards by helicopter and used the helicopter to chase her off and and, and the mm -hmm. uh, sibling off and they looked at it all and they said oh, this is just one of them things you know, he, he didn't, he wasn't in any trouble. He'd done, done nothing wrong. And he's, they, they said, you know, it's just, it's kind of like when you, you know, you uh, produ produce, a, you know, more foolproof uh, mouse trap, you just get a, a brighter mouse. And when this, this is one of those situations. And I mean, it, it killed it, get this, because they were using um, kill springs, they were using one sixteenth cable hung that, uh, I, I guess it was like a 230 pound cub, two year old cub hung it with using one sixteenth cable. I mean, it had a kill spring on it as well. But when you think about the size of the neck on a bear and the amount of fur and everything all around it, not, you know, the hair, it was, it was pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I've always tell people there's nothing that's hundred percent in trapping. Just when you think you got everything figured out, you'll, you'll get your lunch handed to you. <laughs> it's the same thing with, with hunting or whatever. Everybody says, oh, I've never missed that. Uh, you just ain't hunted long enough. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, 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 that situation always comes up you've turned this into a business oh i guess first uh, thing, yes someone for uh do you have a quota um as a quote as far as how many wolves we can catch yeah so we have a personal limit of five um but they allow you to party trap so like uh, my daughter goes with me a lot all they require is have everybody's party trap and have their ALS number on the trap. So, you know, I get my five, she'll, she's tagged out quite a bit. And then uh, I started working for an outfitter. And um, so I've taken guys on these wolf trap line adventure trips, which I think they market quite a bit in Canada and Alaska. 
And so those guys get online and take the wolf certification course. And then they're, all I need to do is put their tag on a trap. So when these guys are with me, they get a tag, you know, whatever wolves we catch. And that's been pretty uh, productive. I've done that for the last two seasons. So I've had some great success and great, you know, stories of guys, you know, with me and, you know, getting to see wolves up close and personal. I had two guys last year that uh, they said they'd been on two Canadian hunts, sitting in blinds. Uh, they logged, they figured 280, close to 300 hours between the two of them in these blinds. They said one trip, it was 40 below and just absolutely miserable. You know, they had to pee in a jug, keep their water under their coat and didn't even see a wolf on any of these trips. So then they come down and went on this trapline adventure trip. And the third day with the two of them, I caught a double. So they each got to get a wolf, you know, right together and they were uh pretty dang happy do uh do they actually do the the setting or do you, do you set before the before um they it just kind of depends you know most of the time stuff's set up before they get here but if they're into you know if they want to set stuff i'll let them um you know if they're because some guys are, are avid trappers some guys just want the experience you know it just really kind of varies um but most of the time i set the traps but i mean i always give them the option if they want to set stuff they're more than welcome okay who's who's the outfitting Let, let's give give your business a bump here for how, how people get a hold of you and how they get a hold of the outfitter so the outfitter i have to work through him i'm just a guy so he does all the booking you know and uh, he has a fantastic lodge people stay out for six days um and it's cody cars hunting adventures and i think you can get online it's huntwithcody.com but okay. then i do like personal instruction and in that um and then to my business is just helterline enterprises but, uh, and my email is thepinepup.com at Gmail. That's all lowercase one word. Um, and I think in that article that I sent you, I included a business card. Yeah, that, I'm going to put that up. Uh, I'll put it up on, online uh, uh, up on um, probably, I can't get it on YouTube, but I can put it up on our, our community and, and uh, a couple other places, but just in, in relation with, the, with this uh, podcast. So, you uh, do a lot of your own personal trapping, but you're doing a lot more trapping than for, for the outfitter. Um, so what, what we agreed on when he hit me with this proposal is I would, uh, I'm basically taking guys on my trap line and I didn't want to change anything that I was doing. So um, in that respect, it's nothing different. Um, I just show up and pick these guys up at the lodge and they go out and just check traps with me every day, you know, and then I drop them off at the end of the day and, uh, they do that for six days. Some of the, some part of the line we can snowmobile into. So, I mean, it's just kind of an experience for them. Um, so some of the guys like snowmobiling. Some of the guys I've had, they didn't care for it just because they were unused to riding a snowmobile. So <laughs> I know a few guys didn't care for it, but then some guys thought it was great. So um, it just all depends. And I always kind of quiz them when I first pick them up, you know, what their expectations for the week are, you know, so I can try to tailor that to meet whatever they need, you know, or whatever they are wanting out of the trip. I, uh, you talk about snowmobile and then I'm looking at your trophies behind you from, from Africa. Um, our PH from uh, South Africa comes over here and does sports shows all the time. And, and of course it's in March. So usually that's, there's lots of good snowmobiling then. And he, I asked him, you know, I asked this guy, his name's Guy Swart. I said, guy, you know, what do you think of snowmobile? He says, he says, it's the craziest thing ever. He says, you get all this kit on, you know, and you know how Africans talk. It's all kit. It's not oh, clothes yeah. or anything, but you get all, all this kit on and, and you go driving along and he says, and he says, you're still freezing. He says, then you get it stuck. And he says, you got to work so hard to get it from unstuck. He says, all your kit goes flying off. And he says, <laughs> 
I laugh. I laugh to listen to him talk about it. <laughs> it's pretty entertaining. Oh, and the, the piece that took me hunting in Zimbabwe was John Sharp. He's pretty well renowned over there, but yeah, thick English accent. <laughs> he was telling me about shooting giraffes for meat during the Bush War, you know, for the troops. And uh, his favorite gun was a 22-250, which I thought was kind of light for a giraffe. But he's like, oh, yeah. He goes, there's a spot where you hit him right in the top of the neck. And I go, well, how's that when you shoot one? And he just says, uh, very dramatic. They fall like a big tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to shoot a draft on that hunt. And he's absolutely right. It's, it's very dramatic. It was probably the most exciting thing I've ever shot hunting, which some people have a hard time believing. But yeah, uh, he's exactly right. Very dramatic. They fall like a big tree. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I tell you, anybody that ever gets a chance, the opportunity, and, and Africa is so affordable. Like, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's freaking, it's awesome. Um, but, you know, I, I get a kick out of the, the, wherever you go in the world, the syntax in that, right? Like here oh, we'd yeah. say, you know, you should or, or you could or whatever. In Africa, it's you must. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) those guys are fun to listen to you know if i had the money i'd go buffalo hunting every year that to me was like the real deal you know watching those trackers track the buffalo and then finally getting close enough to get a shot at one it was was, it's a pretty intense hunt the day i shot mine we could hear uh lions roaring in the distance you know and we were tracking it right when the sun come up so yeah it's a pretty incredible experience yeah 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 trying to explain that that kind of stuff to people who don't understand the com- consumptive use of 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 uh wild game <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you do a lot of um uh seminars like you do a lot um, of a lot of training not a lot you know like with this outfitter now he's got me booked almost solid so i have a few free days i'll take guys out just to do uh you know what i call ride along and i've been doing like just one seminar a year usually in the fall you know just like so uh, come up with the rosters people contact me that they want to come to it or whatever and then i'll pick a date in october or whatever kind of before i get started and just have like a one-day class and then oh, i've done lots of demos at different trapping conventions and that um but yeah that's kind of about the brunt of it you uh actually just did something though you're in kind of like giving back here you're involved in the the uh, uh foundation for wildlife management there's a new chapter occurring in in montana now yeah that organization started uh about 11 years ago kind of right when wolves were getting reintroduced and started becoming a problem oh there were some pretty concerned sportsmen over there just seeing the devastation they were causing and trying to figure out how to you know how to help with that so they come up with this foundation with basically uh it reimburses trappers for some of their expenses you have to be a member um and then through donations these fundraising banquets they have they you submit depending on where the wolf was caught, they have different reimbursement areas in Idaho. Um, If you catch a wolf in that area, you submit the amount of receipts for that reimbursement amount, plus your harvest report, and then they'll cut you a check. Um, And so for a lot of, I mean, I started going to these banquets in Sandpoint, Idaho, five, six years ago, and they were sold out at 600 people. I mean, it was pretty impressive. So when I talked to Justin Webb, the director, I said, how can we get you guys in Montana? You know, we started looking into it. And the way our fishing game interpreted the law, it was illegal because they were considered a bounty. But we had a change kind of in the political regime in Montana, so to speak. We got a Republican governor. So they changed a bunch of stuff legislatively that allowed. So those guys are able to come into Montana now. So, yeah, we started. There's a couple chapters going on. We have a Sanders County chapter, and then there's a chapter up in the Flathead. And so, yeah, we just had the first 
banquet in Montana here, oh, it was about two, three weeks ago um, at Sanders County here in the town where I live in Plains. Yeah, I've, I've wanted to go down. I, I, uh, I've done a podcast with the, the president from over in Idaho, and uh, he's a wonderful guy. He's been here to oh, Alberta. Yeah. Uh, gosh, it'd be probably four or five years ago now he was, he, he was up here. Um, I think it's a, I mean, it's silly because it's, it's like everything in the world today. It's a virtual signal, right? So is it a bounty yeah. or are we reimbursing? You know what I mean? I mean, it's oh, just yeah. a word, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because uh, I met that Morley Smith and I recognized him from your show. I seen, seen him at the Sandpone Banquet and he was with uh, Robert Roman. I was like, God, that looks like that guy on Trapper Inc. I was like, there's no way it can be. <laughs> I eased over there and started talking to Robert. He said, hey, I want to introduce you to Morley Smith. I could not believe it. <laughs> Morley is a super nice guy and just the most relaxed laid back fella like I mean oh I can't I, I've told like I mean he was uh, he had a big uh, cat outfit and uh, I don't know 50 or 60 pieces of yellow and and you know he had a, he had a big uh, a big business and everything people tell me that he was a, a terrible tyrant uh, out in the out on the job site I've never seen that side of him he's just been the most laid back accommodating nice fellow you ever met right yeah no he seemed pretty nice when i just talked to him briefly in sandpoint so how big is your is your membership now um you know we had 200 and some folks a while ago but it's steadily growing you know i think um nationwide the foundation has i think like 4700 people in 38 states you know most of those joined you know through idaho and then once we started the Montana chapters, uh, they kind of rolled over anybody because I was a member in Idaho. Um, they rolled everybody over that's a Montana resident, you know, to the Montana chapter. So uh, yeah, it's it's highly successful in Idaho. You know, now we're just kind of getting started in Montana. So I think it's gonna, I think it's going to do well. Had a ton of we sold the banquet out, you know, over 200 people. You know, that's our town's pretty small. Um, so no, I think I'm pretty excited about it. Well, that's cool. I'm I'm a member in Idaho. Uh, I, I believe that what they're doing is awesome. And, and uh, the one thing that as uh, outdoorsmen, whether we're trappers or hunters or fishermen or whatever, we have to learn to vote with our checkbook. I mean, there is nothing yeah. more important than voting with our checkbook. And, and so I, I know it's in Idaho and you're in, in Montana and I'm in a totally different country, but I believe what you're doing and, and uh, I like supporting you guys. No, it's awesome. Well, we are, have been at it now over an hour after our the the uh, issues we had with the uh, Wi-Fi and everything, and things have went pretty smooth since. Awesome! No, it was fun. <laughs> it's so, it's so been, how does a guy find this or look at it when it's uh, up and available well, for public viewing? It, it'll be, I think it's going to be about three or four weeks before it goes up, but I will send you a link, and okay. it will. Um, all of all of Scuttlebutt is up on uh, like on iTunes or whatever. You can. Oh, that's what's called Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt, yeah. And there's this. You should be, I think, seventy five or seventy six. Should should be the the number that you are, and uh, yeah, you can you can you, you can go to uh, www.trappinginc.com and uh, uh -huh. 
and go to our community page and on our community page you'll you'll find the scuttlebutt podcast we have a direct link right there um anybody that listens to podcasts but most people download them on their phones so they go to to itunes or podcast addict or or wherever and and they download them there and so they listen to them when they're driving that kind of stuff yeah i i never i know i know quite a few people that do listen to podcasts i'm not a podcast listener myself just maybe i haven't tried it yet but uh I'm just kind of excited to check it out. But I mean, I've seen, I'd almost have to get that every one of your Trapping Inc. episodes on YouTube. I mean, it's by far my favorite trapping show. Yeah, we've, well, the first, the first five ep- uh, seasons are there, but the, the next two aren't. Season six and season seven aren't going uh-huh. up. But I've, I've had problems with uh, YouTube with, um, with censorship and they made me mad. So we, we developed a, a, a subscription uh, uh, community and that's where everything goes to uh, now. I just, Heck with them. Huh. When they, when they when they censor me for having my grandchildren going trapping with me, that was the end of it. That was yeah. No, yeah. I totally understand that. Well, they, they and they they start quoting chapter and 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 verse about you know that it's it's the same as as the same child abuse laws like pedophilia and that is like you just crossed the line. Yeah. Because. <laughs> yeah. We got it. We got to keep trapping with our with our, our kids, our grandkids, and everything else. There's nothing more important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sir, I'm going to let you go, and thank you very much for for joining me today. No, thank you. Yeah, just shoot me a link when I can check it out. I'm sure some friends and stuff are wanting to see it. They're pretty excited. I told them I was going to be on here. Yeah, you betcha. Not a, not a problem. We'll, we'll take care of it. I like to thank everybody else for for joining us, and maybe we'll see you down the line.